Hello and welcome to another episode of Journey to the Rise. I'm your host, Lucretia. In today's episode, we talk with Terry Lancaster. He went from being a radio DJ to radio advertising, and that experience led him to discovering his niche and helping car dealerships grow their business. We discuss how his knowledge and expertise help salesmen increase their closing rate by building relationships. He has three number one best-selling books, and during our conversation, he shares with us what inspired him to write them. Terry also goes into what it takes for someone to reach their goals. He discusses the importance of developing habits to help you create your success. He also has some incredible life-changing stories. So let's get started. Please welcome my guest, Terry Lancaster. Today, our guest is a cancer survivor, lived through a natural disaster, survived three teenage daughters, which I think some people would say is a natural disaster of its own. She's a best-selling author. And if you are a small business or an entrepreneur, I think you need to pay attention because he has helped thousands of small businesses and entrepreneurs create billions of revenue. And we get to talk to him today. Terry, thank you so much for being here with us. Oh, Lucretia, thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm excited to talk to you. Yeah, I want to just dive in from the beginning. I ask everybody the same question because it, it's my one number one curiosity. Where did you grow up? So, um, so uh, we're, I'm, I'm, I'm in Nashville, Tennessee now. I'm living here now. We're, in, uh, we're interviewing around there, Middle Tennessee. I'm one of seven people in Middle Tennessee from Middle Tennessee. I'm born and raised in East Nashville. Uh, born in the Gen- in General Hospital on the banks of the Cumberland, went to Stratford High School over in East Nashville, live in Williamson County now. <laughs> wow, that's awesome. What was life like for you as a kid in East Nashville? Because East Nashville is not what it is today. East Nashville, so first of all, it was a long time ago when I was there. East Nashville was an interesting community. It was in, it was in the midst of change. Um, it, at, at one point, East Nashville was, was pretty rough. and it, At one point, East Nashville was the richest area in Nashville. Uh, but then, it, you know, it's, it, it th- things changed. When I was there, it was in transformation. It was in the 70s when I was growing up. We had busing going on. So there was a little bit of turmoil in, in, in and around that. Uh, but but mostly it was pretty idyllic. You know, it was a walkable neighborhood. I could walk to the grocery store or I walk to uh, walk to the the neighborhood market. Rode my bicycle. Uh, neighborhood football games. We did a lot a lot of walking around the neighborhood uh, in in what most would consider a fairly dangerous area. Um, but you know, so it's a little little bit out of the norm the way things happen now. Yeah, definitely, absolutely. So you're in this neighborhood. What did you do after high school? So I, I graduated from Stratford High School, and my cat just jumped up. So he's uh, he's, he's now in the party. Welcome, I wel- love welcome, it. Sully. Um, so I we um, after high school, I went to uh, I was I was a fairly bright kid. I could do the math, and uh, in the seventies we had we were fighting the Russians. So if you could do the math, you had to be an engineer. <laughs> so I went to Tennessee Tech over over in Cookville to uh, <clears throat> to become an engineer. Oh, and, wow. uh so I was uh, I, I studied engineering at Tennessee Tech over in Cookville, uh, but I oh but I got there and decided that just because I could do math didn't make me an engineer. I kind of uh, was more of a uh, well, I was a disc jockey, so I I went to where the radio station was. <laughs> so I uh, I started working in radio when I was in college. I I, I went there. I joined, I, I transferred my degree to, to journalism because the uh, the radio station 
was in the journalism department, even though the journalism department was mainly about laying out small town newspaper ads. But I kind of built this curriculum around radio. So I worked in radio all through college. I managed the college radio station. I went to work at the top 40 station uh, my last couple of years in college. I was I was a primetime disc jockey. Primetime Kelly Michaels putting on the hits, baby. Uh, bon Jovi. It was, uh, we did a lot of that. But I found out pretty quick that um, the disc jockeys aren't the people who make the money at the radio station. In fact, the radio business ain't about the music and it ain't about the disc jockey. It's about advertising dollars. So uh, while I was in college, I started studying advertising uh, so that when I graduated, I could switch from being a disc jockey to selling advertising for radio stations. And I moved, uh, moved to Tupelo, Mississippi a week after I, I graduated from college. I got married. I went on my honeymoon. I came back and moved uh, 200 miles away from everyone I ever known to sell, uh, sell radio advertising in Tupelo, Mississippi. And I did that for in Tupelo and Memphis back and forth between those couple places for uh, about the next, uh, next five years after graduation. Seven years, I think, yeah. Wow. Good old Tupelo. Birthplace of Elvis. Tupelo, yeah. Home of Elvis. Yeah. Love that. That's awesome. So uh, eventually you got into, like, cars. Where was the transition for you? Like, what was life for you? So you're doing this thing. You're going between Tupelo and Memphis. Like, what tr what transition next for you? So this 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 was in the uh, in the eighties, right? And uh, so I'm I'm in my twenties in, in in my in the eighties, and uh, just just like in the radio station, I found out that the uh, the radio business was about the uh, was was about advertising. I found out the uh, the radio advertising business was about car advertising. That was the by far the heaviest vertical. That those were our biggest advertisers. They had the biggest budgets. They spent the most money. So I took it on myself to get really good. At, at automotive advertising. Uh, so some of my biggest customers, both in Tupelo and in Memphis, were, uh, were, were car dealerships. Some of my best customers, right from the get-go, were car dealerships. And my biggest customers worked with these giant dealers over, uh, over on Covington Pike in Memphis. They were you know, selling hundreds of cars, spending enormous amounts of money at, at, at the time. So I, I got interested in, in the car business because it was very lucrative and uh, let, left, the, uh, left the radio business in the 90s to start an advertising agency that didn't do anything but work with car dealerships. Wow. And you ended up writing a book about this. What was the inspiration to write your book? Well, the what the the, the book I, I ended up writing a book. Um my, the first book I wrote was called Better Self-Help for the Rest of Us had nothing to do with the, with the car business. I've come back around now. I've written I've written 3 uh, books uh, three. I've got three number one best-selling books now. I've been very lucky in that respect. Uh, uh, and but I ended up writing one about the car business because the, uh, the my, it's the most recent book I, I released it over the last couple of years, um, a couple of years ago, and it's called How to Sell More Cars. And I wrote it because the car business has changed so dramatically since when I got first got into it in the uh, in the '80s when it was when it was all about spending huge money on on radio and TV stations and and car dealers still do. Spend huge money on radio and TV stations and I still produce radio and TV spots for car dealerships. I've probably written more radio spots than any human being alive just because I've been doing it for so long. But the, the business has changed because the, one of the major components that we did in the 80s and 90s was, was newspaper advertising. The newspaper, and newspaper advertising was designed to capture low funnel buyers. Buyers are in the market right now. And the newspaper business is out of business now. And all of that low funnel stuff, that the car shoppers, they don't go pick up the Sunday paper 
to uh, to buy a car anymore. They uh, they go they go to the they go to the internet. They go they go to their phone. They go to Google. They go they go to Facebook. They go to the, these places. And so that's changed the way cars are sold. That's the way shop, shoppers act. And because of social media, it's changed the way salespeople interact with their customers. And so what I did, I wrote the book How to Sell More Cars to help salespeople who never traditionally had to really develop these local, these social relationships, where for the most part they don't because they're, they're so busy working incoming buyers. Uh, but the real lucrative part of the car business is when you've got those long-term customers who come back over and over and over again. You, you run the big radio ads to get them in the first time and to maintain a presence in the market. But, uh, but you want to eventually have these people who are coming in to see you because they know, like, and trust you, and you've built a personal relationship with them. So that's what the book How to Sell More Cars is about. It's about helping salespeople market themselves in this new era, the way where we're buying and the way we sell almost everything. That's amazing. And you're right, it has transitioned a lot, and people do like to have that familiar face. It, it seems to build that trust so that you have an idea of who you're dealing with because I think there's this this idea of when it comes to car salesmen, the sleazy car salesman who's going to take advantage of you and it's scary to buy. That's a big purchase. It always has been, but especially now. So I'm sure they having a book and a guide like what you offer can give those people who truly want to help someone get into a safe vehicle, have that nice vehicle, maybe even the dream vehicle, create that connection. Right. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I say that's the, that's the, that's the best thing a, a salesperson can do for the customer is to have a relationship with them before they come in the dealership so that it's never, there's never an antagonistic moment. There's never, it's all, there's always that the, the greatest thing they can do to improve the experience is, is to, uh, to decrease the animosity uh, right off the bat. And that, so that it's never, never, never any kind of battle. It's just, you know, one friend helping another you know, to accomplish what they want. And so uh, starting the process much earlier is the, is the big key to getting that done. Yeah, absolutely. And you've mentioned the other book that you have better, Self-Help for the Rest of Us. What was it that made you want to write this book and how long did it take you to write it? So, uh, so it took me a lifetime to write it because that's what it takes, right? I, uh, uh, what happened was I, uh, I, I, I got to, uh, where, where are we at now? We're, we're, I, I had to be about 47 years old. So I, I wrote better self-help for the rest of us almost 10 years ago. Um, that's when I started writing it. That's when I, when I started writing it. And I started writing it because I was, I was, I was actually, um, I, I, was ten, I, was, I was tending bar. I was at a fundraiser. I was at a fundraiser for my, for, uh, my kids were in high school band at the time. And uh, at one of the fundraisers they did to fund the band and the trips because my kids were going to Europe that summer. One of the things they did was they tended bar and sold food at Bridgestone Arena for concerts. It's it's they you know public some of the charities do that thing. So the band the band the band organization was one of the uh, the charities that staffed the bar, and I was serving bar at a Garth Brooks concert in uh in at Bridgestone, and oh, I was wow. serving with this uh, this lady uh, who was who who was another band mom a, ba a band parent. And she uh, she had kids, but she was from Britain. She had not grown up in East Nashville. She'd come from very far far away, and she had not lived here honestly that long. And at the time, she had zero idea who Garth Brooks was. What is Garth Brooks? And I was trying to tell her. I said, Well, Garth Brooks has sold more record than the Beatles and Elvis probably combined. He, I mean, he in the '90s, the, he was the radio. 
Uh, he was he was everything. So he was a big deal. He sold out like five nights in a row at Bridgestone, and she, and she didn't know why. And she said, "Well, how old is he?" And I and here's what I said. I said, "Well, he's he's about our age. He's like 50." And I'd never said that before. I was about to be 50 years old, and it kind of I, I kind of realized, "Oh, I'm a." I'm a grown ass man. <laughs> this is this is who I am, right. uh, and uh, dude, and it was it was it was it was a kick in the gut. It's like, and and I realized I, at that point I was kind of a mess. Uh, I was I was I've always been overweight, but I was way overweight, and uh, I've always always drank, but I drank way too much at that time, and. Um, and uh, my business was struggling uh, because because of the changes in the market. They weren't car dealers didn't lay out newspaper ads anymore. And uh, during m most of the '90s, that'd been 90% of my uh, my advertising revenue was, uh, was was newspaper ads because that's where the big money was, and that was gone. Um, so uh, so I was struggling a little bit, and I, and I said I, I got I got to get my act together, <laughs> and uh, and 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 I did <laughs> I did really kind of it started off it started off slow I started like everyone else I started uh, I, I decided I, I'm 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 you know I'm I'm going to run a marathon next week that's what that's what you do right I'm gonna go I'm gonna go run a marathon, um, but nobody nobody runs marathon uh, nobody runs a half marathon but I, I uh, and I played ice hockey and a bunch of my buddies actually had run half marathons so uh, but what what I watched them all do is they would uh, especially the ones who who, who got uh, got old and fatter uh, would decide to get back in shape I'm going to get in shape and I'm going to go run a marathon and then they would run a marathon and they'd pull their hammy out and then they're back on the couch drinking beer for six months and, uh, and they, so everyone everyone decides that they're going to fix themselves and they want to do it all right now because as as the as human species we have zero patience so we want it all right now and we want it all to be perfect uh and so that's where I, that's that's what got me started on the path and i did that for a couple of years and uh and, and i started writing about it i started kind of keeping a blog and i kind of stumbled into the idea of of instead of being perfect um why don't we just be better why don't oh, we wow. it's why don't it starting with what we what we want to be yeah, instead of starting with this perfect idealized version of ourselves, why don't we start with exactly who we are, exactly the life we're living right now, and try to make it just a little bit better, uh, one step at a time. Now, now, and I, when I, when I, and honestly, I did. I stumbled into that idea, and I thought that that's that's a big deal. I need to make this book about that, and that's what I set out about doing. In the course of writing the book, I found out that everything I was talking about is is ancient, two thousand year old wisdom, and ain't nothing new. And I didn't I didn't invent nothing. These ideas were all there, uh, but I put I put them into this book form uh, and uh, about about making your life better instead of being the uh, the version that uh, you know instead of trying trying to lose a hundred pounds and make a million dollars. Why don't, you, why, don't, why don't you go out, take a walk, and uh, and try to call on a couple of customers and do the work that's actually gonna 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 get you there. So that's the better part. The self help for the rest of us is because when I was said I'm gonna write a I'm gonna write a self help book, you start looking around at them, and it's the funny thing about self help authors is they all look like they have perfect lives. You, you go yeah. you go into the bookstore and there's Tony Robbins and he's got more teeth than any human being should be allowed to have. He's got this perfect smile and he's six foot four and he's a solid specimen of a human being uh but that's not how most of us are the most of us don't look like that most of us you know most of us kind of struggling through uh and uh, i wanted the book to be for everybody who's kind of struggling through saying you don't have to be that just be you better 
I love that. And you're right. We do want, we think we can go out and fix things and, and we go do something and then we put too much into it and then we backtrack ourselves. And then that turns into yeah. depression, anxiety, and it, it seems to compile. Um, I'm going to yeah. be getting your book after this conversation because uh, I think not only I could use it, but many of my friends will be able to use that, that advice. Yeah, it's a never ending well. loop. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll have more from our guest, Terry, as he talks about what to do when your business plateaus and needs a boost out of a slump. Are you utilizing your email list? Do you know that with the right message, you can convert sales and grow your business with an effective email messaging system? If you would like to know how to grow your business, build a connection with your clients, please go to girlbosscopywriter.com to set up a free 30-minute consultation and find out how Girl Boss Copywriter can enhance your business. The goal for any business is to grow and reach a new level. Get there faster by being an authority in your industry with a video docu-series. Using video, you can showcase you, your business, your staff, products, services, and your why. Building relationships is key, and high-quality video can give existing and potential clients a way to get to know you. It also allows you to build a connection that results in increased sales. If you'd like to know more about how you can enhance your business with video, contact GirlBossProductions.com today. Welcome back to Journey to the Rise. We continue our conversation with Terry and why he does not consider himself a motivational speaker. And you have another book called Unstuck. Can you share what that's about with us? Yeah, so I uh, so after after I wrote better, I started uh, like I started appearing on podcasts and I, I was on I was on uh, the first year after I released better, I was on about 100 podcasts. Uh, and I and I got invited to do to, to do some speaking and a, a lot of speaking in and around Nashville to some of the business groups and, and sales organizations um, and uh, like the National Association of Sales Professionals and a gentleman by the name of Tom Coates, Tom Coates uh, who, who who had this uh, had a, a networking group that he ran. Uh, he's now the professor of sales at uh, Middle Tennessee State University. He's gone on since that time uh, to get his doctorate. And he now teaches young sales professionals how to, how to be entrepreneurs and salespeople coming out of college. But he, uh, he and I met through, through the networking and speaking I was doing at that time. And we ended up, uh, Tom mostly, put on uh, this sales conference, uh, this sales and business conference called Unstuck. And it was down, it was down at Bridgestone Arena, uh, just where, I'd, where I'd been serving beer just, just a couple years before. Uh, and uh, we put on this little sales conference. And we had about 10 speakers who were speaking at this conference. And we're speaking about becoming unstuck, about taking your business to the next step of its development. You've, gone, you, you've made it. You're at a business. But now you find yourself at a plateau or maybe even uh, that point where I was, where my business has gone away and you've, you're, your business is changing. And you have to come out the other side of that valley. You have to become unstuck. Um, and, and so we had 10 speakers speaking about different uh, Different aspects of that. The thing I was speaking about was about was was on personal branding, uh, about developing this idea of you, and then using digital media to transfer that idea into the brains of your customers so that they already know you uh, before they know you. 
And uh, we put on this conference, and I, I told all of the speakers, if you, if you will you know, give me a, a written version of your speech, we're going to take your speech, we're going to put it in a, in a written version, and I, we'll, we'll, we'll create a book out of that. So that uh, so that we can we can have those at the conference and for later for you for you to get you know, for you to use in your promotional development to uh, to spread these ideas uh, and we'll, we'll build a book all of, uh, out of that. So we put together this book Unstuck as in conjunction with the, uh, the Unstuck conference down at Bridgestone. I think that was 2017, 18, something like that. Wow, that's awesome. And you're right. So many times we do get stuck. We find a plateau. We we get these blocks, and we don't know how to find navigate our way through that so this is this is really great information that if you're a business owner out there or maybe just stuck in life this may be a book for you and is that how you became a motivational speaker is that what led you into that area of your career well first of all i hate the word motivational speaker uh, and and and, and, and not, no no judgment on you, Lucretia. Uh, but that's that's uh, uh, because that's what people call it, right? And if you go on, if you go online, you're going to find me listed under motivational speakers because that's the thing. But the thing is, I'm I am the last, I'm the farthest thing from a motivational speaker because one of the things that I teach is is uh, the deficiency in motivation. Motivation will always fail you at the exact moment you need it most. The moment you run out of motivation. When you don't have any, what do you do then? And motivation is easy. It's easy to get all raw rod and pumped up and, and I'm gonna go run half marathon and I'm gonna turn my business around and that's what we do. That, that motivation, that part that, uh, that when you're really psyched and you feel like you can get anything done and you're all gung-ho, that's the easy part. The hard part is actually doing it. <laughs> the, the hard part is doing it you know the, the you know the the you know the gyms are full on January second, February second, not so much, right? So the hard part is February second. The hard part is one foot put one foot in front of the other day after day after day after day, and that's not motivation to get you there. That's habit that gets you there. It's not even determination because determination, just like motivation, is it's it's a it's a it's a muscle. You can be as determined as you want and as gritty as you want, but eventually that's going to that's going to fade away. Something shiny is going to pop up and uh, and take your attention away from that, or some other problem is going to be more pressing than than whatever you're trying to accomplish. And the thing that gets you going day to day is is habit about turning those tiny steps that you take, those tiny actions that you take today, building those into habits that you take tomorrow, and you take the day after that, and you take the day after that until they become well, a habit until you can't not do them. So that's that's what I speak about. I started speaking after the book came out. I, like I said, I got invited to a, to these speaking conferences around uh, around Nashville, the local networking conferences, and uh, then I started. I spoke at a couple of national conventions. Uh, I spoke at the National Automobile Dealers Association. Spoke at the uh, the National Association of Broadcasters to uh, to radio and tele to radio broadcasters. Um, and I've been, then I've spoken around the country, mostly mostly the car dealerships. I, I, I go in and do tr training sessions and, and speaking and development with car dealerships for uh, for the kind of stuff in, in the book, How to Sell More Cars. Nice. And you're right. I do appreciate that because you're right. The motivation is the easy part. It's the day-to-day work and what people need to realize is when you start to establish that routine those habits that's where the motivation starts to come from because you get that that drive because 
it's habitual. So I really appreciate you touching on that because you're right. It's so much more than just being motivated. That's awesome. So I noticed in one of the video clips I came across on you, you told a story and hopefully you'll share it with us about, did you have a mugshot taken while wearing party clothes? Um, no, no. Um, the truth <laughs> is I've, I've, I've never, I've never had a mugshot taken. Now, now I don't know what I said in that clip because I am prone to exaggeration. No, so I think Mark Twain or somebody else famous once said, uh, you know, never let the truth get in the way of a good story. So, uh, so I, I, I've never had my mugshot t taken uh, with my party clothes, but I did get my fingerprints taken uh, with, with, with my party clothes on in, uh, in, Cook, in Cookville, Tennessee. Um, Cookville, Tennessee, I was in college and uh, I'd been out, uh, I, you know, I was 18, 19 years old uh, in college and I'd been out uh, drinking, dancing and, and chasing women the night before. And I had all my drinking, dancing, chasing women clothes, uh, uh, which at the time, because uh, because you you probably weren't even born. Uh, most of the people watching this probably weren't even born. But if you can imagine, I had on uh, baggy pinstripe jeans. I had on uh, Capizio jazz dance shoes. Now you'll have to Google that to see what it is. But it was Capizio. They're those pointy-o dance shoes with the soft soles, so you can slide and wiggle your butt in them. And uh, and then I had on a pink golf shirt with the collar popped up and because it was the 80s I had uh, I, I had a full-blown mullet actually I had better than a mullet I had a rat's tail so it, it looked it looked pretty it looked pretty much exactly like it looks here from the top maybe a little more I might have had a little more wavy stuff going on but in the back it was down over the collar and then the, then you know three or four inches of rat's tail in, in belong that I did not have a bead in my rat's tail though so that's, that's where I drew the line that's absolutely fantastic. I love living life. That's what we gotta do, right? Living life. That's by, by, by the way, the police show, the police showed up the next morning uh, and 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 came by and picked me up because uh, in our in our in our uh, enthusiasm, we had neglected to pay a bill at the Waffle House when we stopped drinking and dancing and chasing women at three in the morning. So that's why the police showed up and I had to get the fingerprinted and go pay my bill at the Waffle House. <laughs> The good old Waffle House, causing trouble for everybody at 3 a.m. <laughs> now, you you survived a tornado. Um, can you share that experience with us? Because that's terrifying. It, it, it is beyond terrifying. It really is. And uh, so uh, I think I think you I think you told me you lived in Memphis. So I was I was living in Memphis at the time or. No, I take it back. I was living in Tupelo, but I was visiting Memphis, and uh, some friends and I, and my uh, my wife, and uh, some friends had gone to um, the Greyhound Dog Track uh, in West Memphis, West Memphis, Arkansas, uh, across the river, across the bluffs from Memphis, Tennessee. Um, they had this. They used to have this Greyhound Dog Track, Southland Greyhound Park was the name of it, where they raced the uh, they were they they raced the Greyhound dogs, and gambling was legal on it. So we were there uh, gambling and betting, uh, betting on the on the puppies, not the ponies, on the puppies. And um, so you you cross the the Mississippi River out of Memphis, and Memphis sits sits on the bluff a little bit, and it's got it's got a few hills over there. But you get to Arkansas, it's just flat, ain't nothing for a long, long, long time. And uh, and we're we're sitting there in the middle of these soybean fields, in mile in the middle of miles and miles and miles of soybean fields, and uh, we're gambling on the uh, on on the puppies. And we start to hear this this kind of train rumble. You hear you hear people talk about it sounding like a train rumble, and it does. 
it's like and again it becomes more intense becomes more intense becomes more intense and I don't uh, if I, most people probably haven't been to a to a dog track racing track but I don't I haven't been to a lot so I don't know if they're all bit like this but there were about 30 rows of seats um, and it was it and it was they were covered and they had a giant plexiglass in front of them. So there was, I assume it was plexiglass, maybe it was some kind of glass. I don't know what it was, but it was, um, it was probably 20, 30 feet tall. And that was spread all the way across down the whole, the whole front way stretch of the, uh, of the, of the dog track. I have no idea how long that was. But, and we're standing at the top of the rails because we just placed a bet. And uh, so there's 20, 30 rows of people in front of us. Um, watch, watching, watching the dogs race, and you start to hear that train coming, and then the uh, then the plexiglass it starts wobbling. You can you can see it coming in and shaking, and uh, uh, it starts going. And even before the train gets there, uh, everybody from the bottom of that track starts running up to the top of the track. And it was just this wall wall of people, uh, and then the uh, the uh, the tornado goes over us it intensifies and then you hear it all around us and then it's gone and the whole thing probably lasts i don't know 15 30 seconds right or you know not not a huge amount of time but but it comes and it's gone uh when we got out of the parking lot there'd been cars i don't know that it actually struck the building we were in i think it skipped over the building but it hit the parking lot um uh, there were cars tumbled over there were cars in in the road that had been in the parking lot now they're out in the road uh there were barns in the in the fields next to the track uh, the, the these barns with sheet metal roofs that had been picked up, and the sheet metal was wrapped up like a like a ball of yarn, and it was this big ball of sheet metal in the middle of the field that you, where a barn you know near where a barn used to be. Um, wow. So it was uh, it, it was pretty intense. Yeah, no kidding. Thank goodness you're okay, and hopefully everybody else is okay. That's terrifying. And you've also been on a boat that sank. What are the <laughs> details of that situation? People, people, uh, people are fascinated with with all the ways I nearly died. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> uh, yeah. um, when I was a kid, uh, when I was a kid growing up in East Nashville, my dad uh, was from a place called Stewart County, uh, which is up near the Kentucky border. Uh, Stewart County, Tennessee. He specifically grew up in a place near Dover. His his grandparents' farm. Uh, where they had been farmers, and they, 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 his family's lived there for generations, generations, generations since the 1700s. Um, so uh, his family, his grandparents' farm, had been had been uh, subsumed by the government to form this federal wildlife area, the land between the lakes. And actually, when they flooded the Cumberland River uh, uh, and 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 the Tennessee River, they flooded them both at the same time. To make uh, to make these huge lakes and the uh, Lake Barkley and uh, Kentucky Lake, uh, the areas a lot of the areas were lost. His grand his great his grandparents' farm is now at the at the bottom of the lake. Um, so when I was a kid, we used to spend a lot of time up there at this at this place, land between the lakes, and we'd go camping every year every year for for a whole week. We'd leave on a Friday night and we'd stay till the next Sunday. So nine nine days camping. That was our family vacation every year. We'd go camping uh, with you know. Our, my aunts and uncle, a couple of aunts, a couple of uncles, grandparents, everybody. We and we would take. We all had campers and we all had boats, and we'd go down there camping and fishing um, for for a week. And so we had this boat, and it'd been. We we stayed at this campground, and the boat had been in the water for a full week, and we didn't really know uh, that the boat w- was damaged. It had like a, a tiny crack in the hull, 
So as it had been sitting in the water for a week, it had been taking on water on the inside shell of the boat. So we, uh, we, we take off, we, we take off and, uh, we got like three boats running in a caravan, uh, my grandparents and my uncle, and then our boat, uh, with, with me, my mom and, and my brother on it. And, uh, and we're driving along and, uh, as you know, we leave the little area that we're in the boat, we get the boat up on plane and everything's fine. Just chugging along. We're, we're chugging down the river, chug, 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 chugging. And we're taking, we're taking the heavy family, the, 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 the moms, the kids, everybody. And we're going to go to some picnic area, I think. So we're just loaded down. All the kids are on there. It's, it's a, it's a big old thing, but it's just me and my brother. I'm, I'm probably, I'm probably nine, 10 at this point. And, uh, so we're, we're chugging along down the river. Everything's fine. We turn to where we get to the picnic bay, we slow down and the boat comes down. When the boat comes down out of the water that had been in the back of the boat rushed to the forward and the boat just dives, just, just boom. So we're going along. And as we slow down, we reach a point of the water rush to the front. And one, one, literally one second we're riding along in the boat. The next, the boat just drives completely out from underneath us. It just drives down. And we're and we're all had life jackets on, so we're we're all floating, and there there's no there there. The boat just disappeared out from under, under, underneath us, and uh, um, and then it go, it goes about three, four, five yards down the uh, down down the river, and and pops up, turns over upside down. So all our picnic supplies, all my dad's fishing supplies, our trolling motor, everything drops to drops to the, to the bottom of the river. Uh, but uh, and uh, the thing I remember the most is uh, my, I was so I was probably eight or nine, which means my little brother, my little brother was four or five, I guess, uh, yeah, something like that at that time. He and uh, and he he ended up, he came up and he was frightened to death because as we were going under, everybody grabbed at him. You know, he grabbed 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 the grabbed the toddler. So I grabbed at him, mama grabbed at him, daddy grabbed at him. So all he knows is everybody's grabbing at him and we're going underwater. So. So, uh, but everybody came out safe. We we did lose the trolling motor, though. Oh my gosh, you're like a cat with nine lives. No. <laughs> you you also talk about you're flying through the Bermuda Triangle, and the plane that you're on dropped a mile in the sky. Yeah. Like, what, yeah, about, yeah, about three. What was that like? Like, I I, <laughs> I try not to get too nervous just through basic turbulence. I cannot imagine just like. <sighs> down <laughs> so yeah i was this was um i was when i was working in radio in tupelo we took a uh we took a trip to the bahamas in in the 80s and uh, we took a trip we took uh took uh it was it was the employees of the, uh, the the sales team of the radio station the managers the sales team of the radio station and and some clients and we took this group trip to the bahamas got rooms went to the casino down there there's a common theme of gambling going on and uh we uh we we were in the in the bahamas and um we were flying back we were flying back from the bahamas so everybody was we'd been it was a whirlwind trip we'd only been down there a couple of days three days i guess and um we're flying back and everybody's hung over everybody's sunburned you know it's just it's just it, it, it's the end, end of a long vacation uh and uh, we're, we're coming back we're flying flying back to miami uh and we, we, we you know we reach uh, we reach cruising altitude and the uh the pilot comes on and says, "Hey, everybody! Uh, the light comes on, and the pilot comes on and says, I need everyone to uh, to grab your seats and, and buckle up. We're going to be encountering encountering just a, a, a little bit of turbulence uh, going on. So we go through and we get we, we get some some regular turbulence, and uh, you know the the wings are shaking, and the things are going up, and everybody's everybody's kind of doing the nervous looking around thing. There's lightning going on, gets gets real dark. 
um, and is doing that. And then, and then all of a sudden, we're going, we're going, and just like uh, Wiley Coyote when he runs off the cliff, whoo, the plane oh just drops, gosh. just, <laughs> and and you you mean you could feel it in your stomach. Now, two things happened simultaneously as, as this happened. Uh, one, the little dangly uh, decompression things when, when there's decompression in the cabin, every, the these uh, the, the the air masks them out, right? So. Uh, so simultaneously, all these air masks drop out of the sky like the worst party favors ever is jiggling and wiggling <laughs> like it's, you know, confetti. It's New Year's Eve. So it yeah. pops down. Uh, at the same time, somewhere between a third and a half, all the passengers on the plane throw up <laughs> because your stomach, oh, which no. was right here, is now right yeah. here. It's just every, 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 everybody lost their cookies. There was no time, no, no time to grab any uh, any. Um, any any of the air sick bags or anything like that, and we don't even you know you don't even have time to, to to bend over and kiss your butt goodbye. You think, and then the plane just goes again. It goes whoop, and then it starts going, and then a couple minutes later, there's no turbulence, and uh, the captain comes on and and kind of calm like and and says, um, "Sorry uh, about the turbulence we encountered a, a little bit back there. That we hit uh, what's what's called an air pocket." Uh, there just wasn't any air pressure there to, to hold up the plane, and uh, but we, we, we regained we regained uh, lift, and uh, we'll be arriving in you know Miami in about ten minutes. Please enjoy the rest of your flight. <laughs> the scariest thing of all of that is is there's a name for it, and why I don't know why people don't tell you this that there's air pockets where there's not enough air to hold up the planes. Wow. Why are we going up there when there's not enough air to hold up the planes? If you could just drive along and there's no road, I wouldn't be driving on that road. But sometimes, <laughs> right. apparently, it, it happens. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that would be terrifying. And, and in all areas, you know, the Bermuda Triangle, which already has, like, this known mystery, if you will, behind it. Wow. Right. Well, I'm glad the flight went well and that... <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing how calm those pilots are when things like that happen. It's like, oh, by the way, right. we almost died, but we good. <laughs> but we didn't, so there's that. <laughs> right. Now, I believe I saw on your website that you have a program called Seven Mistakes Your Salespeople Are Making on Social Media. Uh, is there one of those mistakes that you could possibly share with us? Um. I think the biggest mistake that, that salespeople and business people and, and entrepreneurs of all sorts, they make with social media is, is the obvious one, and this they, they treat it more as media and less as social. Social, social media is, is just a component of, of relationship building. It's one of the ways that we build and develop relationships with, with, with our customers, with our employees, with our communities. And if you're using social media the same way that you use radio or television advertising to interrupt and intrude and to, uh, to bring your message to people uh, when they're not necessarily expecting your message, uh, and, and to kind of take advantage of that relationship, um, if that's all you're using it for, if that's the only thing you're doing, then you're, you're doing it wrong. And if you can just kind of turn that on its head and use social media more as a social tool to build relationships, to maintain relationships, to strengthen relationships, to build and form actual connections and community, 
you're, you're going to come closer to getting what you're wanting out of it than if you, you, you use it for a lead generation uh, device. Yeah, that's a, so important is building community, using it as social. I think that's where people miss like, the mark by a lot. That's fantastic advice. If there's someone out there listening, maybe they're feeling stuck in the growth of their business. Maybe they're even feeling stuck in life. Like, what advice would you have for them? Um, if I, I, I'm full of advice, but if I had to tell you to, to do one thing, if, you, if you're if you're in a, if you're in a situation um, and, uh, and and you, you want to change things, whether it's your life, whether it's your business, whether it's your relationship more than likely it's because it's yourself of all of those things all, uh, uh, of, of all those things all those problems are usually more self-generated than than they are otherwise um, I think one, one of the first steps toward making any lasting change in your life in any of those areas is to, to start obviously right here right now to start where you are because you'll never get where you're going unless you start where you are so to take a look at where you are Take kind of an inventory of of everything of of your life and what are the things happening in your life right now that are going well. What are you grateful for? What do you wake up every day excited about? Uh, what what uh, what what brings you joy? What sparks joy in in your life at this moment, at this time? Uh, and uh, and be truly thankful for that and and grateful that it's in your life and feel it and uh, start endeavoring to uh, to make more of your life like that and uh, so uh, so so people when I say it's that uh, people people confuse what I'm talking about with with being happy Uh, but when I was uh, at at the bars at three in the morning being happy that ain't that ain't the same thing uh, because I was trying I was always trying to get somewhere and true happiness there's a tell the story in um, in better the book about happiness and uh, there's if you go Google um, hagfish. There's this animal called a hagfish, which is just this, a big clunk of gooeyness from the deep sea. And if you pick it up, it squirts slime everywhere. And the harder you try to grab it, the more slime it emits. And you just you just can't hold on to a hagfish. And uh, I, I use the analogy in the book that happiness, true happiness, joy is 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 like that hagfish. And the more you're trying to grab it. The more you're trying to hang on and, and, and get a grip on on even what it looks like, then the more it's going to spit and squirm and slurm and, 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 and evade you. So uh, quit looking so damn hard and just kind of be where you are and, uh, and, and, and make every day a little bit better. That's fantastic advice. I love that. And you're right. People do. It's like grabbing onto a hot dog. You grab a hot dog on really, really tight. It's just going to go boom. Yeah. You gotta stop trying so hard. Well, I, I've heard someone make the comment, uh, "Try easier." And so, trying so hard, try easier, and and I think yeah. that very much aligns with what you just said. Um, and you also talk about your copywriting, something that I I would like to touch base with you on. Um, clearly, you are very brilliant with marketing and your copywriting. How has your copywriting been just so instrumental in with what you do? Well, um, you know, we're all of everything we do, um, uh, especially because it's now done digitally. We're all it's all about trying to uh, to move an idea of sales. Here's here's the perfect example. 
Sales uh, has been called the transfer of enthusiasm from one person to another. If I'm trying to sell you on my new phone, I'm going to sell you this new phone, then, then I have to transfer the enthusiasm that I have for this phone, the, brilliant, the, the brilliance that I think it is, I have to take that idea and I have to put it in your head. Right? I, I, have, I, have, to, I have to make my ideas your ideas. You have, you have to become convinced in the way that I become convinced. And I have to do a magic trick that takes my brain and puts that into your brain. And long before we had any technology like uh, this camera or this phone or this computer or any of these things or, you know, brilliant uh, design um, that, that we can build images and videos and all these ideas that we use to transfer our ideas and, and, uh, and convictions from one head to another, hundreds of thousands of years before that, we had words. We had stories. We gathered around the campfire telling stories to each other, and that's how human culture came to be because we transferred stories from one head to another head over generations and the stories grew and the stories grew bigger and bigger and bigger every time as stories do and and we built this entire culture from the use of words so of course words and stories are going to be at the basis of every kind of human communication story is our natural language that's that's how we get stuff done <laughs> Yeah, everybody loves story. And I think it helps, as you're talking about that, you know, it's story that helps you get that connection to the sale, to the marketing, to the, the item, the thing, the product, the service. And having that skill as a copywriter, I think people don't realize how incredibly important it is. No, it's the basis for everything. Like I said, it, 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 it is the kernel. It is the nugget. It is from whence it all comes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And how long have you, have you always like kind of fallen into that copywriter role or did you just one day after many years of what you're doing realize, oh my gosh, I'm a copywriter or did it always make sense to you that you were a copywriter? No, I've, I've been a copy, I've been a copywriter since I was a kid. Before I knew anything about what I was, I was, I was a copywriter. I was scribbling stuff in notebooks when, when, when I was a kid. I was a voracious reader when I was a kid. I'm not as much of a reader now. Um, but I was a huge reader when I was a kid, so I read everything I'd get my hands on, and I just assimilated a lot, a lot, a lot of words. And I, I, so I've always been fairly eloquent at expressing my words. I knew it was something that I was, I was decent at. Uh, so I kind of, you know, grateful for what I had. I leaned into that. Um, when I was, uh, when I started in radio, the radio station was in the journalism department, so I transferred to to journalism. And uh, as going through this major. Uh, like I said, the, the the journalism department at the time at Tennessee Tech wasn't designed to create broadcast journalists. It was designed to create print journalists. So we all worked at the newspaper. We covered a beat for the student newspaper. I worked at the at the Nashville, Tennessee, and in Banner uh, when 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 I was at, interned there one summer when I, I was in school. So I was writing uh, always um, and, and from the, from the time I was a kid and, and 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 I knew it was pretty good at it. And even when I was a disc jockey, so when I was a, when I was disc jockeying uh, on top of the uh, the mountain at uh, the mighty Jet 107 in Monterey, Tennessee. I was the primetime nighttime disc jockey, but I ended up being the chief copywriter for the radio stations because, you know, 
there were people there who produced radio spots, but I was a journalism major and I was some uh, eager 20 year old kid. I'd do whatever they told me to do. So yeah, I, I'll write the radio spots. So I, I wrote all of the radio spots for that radio station for all of the salespeople. And then when I went into sales, I, I, I made a, um, because I knew how important it was. I, I never understood how a, a salesperson could have another person write their script. How do you, I mean, how you, you should know it better than anyone. You should be able to write it, but the, you know, um, if when you have a hammer, everything looked like a nail. My hammer was the ability to put words together, you know, better. So I, um, so I, everything, it, lo- it just seemed silly that someone else would write, write the copy. Uh, and that's how I ended up writing more commercials than any other human being is because I just kept doing it because that's what I do. <laughs> that's awesome. I love that. If there's someone out there who's wanting to get into copywriting, like what kind of thoughts or words of wisdom or advice could you share with? that aspiring person uh my, my advice would be don't do that <laughs> uh that's uh that's uh yeah don't uh, don't um uh the, i think my best advice for a, a a copywriter is if you are good at the words find a way to use the words to your benefit um for yourself for your for your enterprise for your business for whatever it is you want to do um, I mean AI is a big thing right now this chat GPT thing is no joke it, it can it can write an article just as great just as just as good as uh, as a uh, as a fair to middling uh, college student which which is and which is better than 90 percent of the of, of the Shrek that gets peddled off from uh, from from uh, foreign language speakers it's English as a second language people who don't who don't speak it as a, as a native the, the 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 robots are doing a fair to middling job uh, at at this. So so writing writing words for other people, I, I don't I don't see a huge future uh, for that except for for for, for a lot of folks. Uh, there's always going to there's always going to be some, but I, I think for the most part, if you can take that ability to craft a tale, to weave a narrative, to 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 compel people to your way of thinking, uh, my advice is to find some way of thinking. Uh, that you can use your, your, your craft to compel people to do and get paid for that instead of for the words. Mm-hmm. So do you still play hockey? I do. Uh, I played hockey yesterday, as a matter of fact, and I'm playing hockey tonight. <coughs> so two, two, you are? Two nights in a row. Nice. How old were you when you started playing? I started playing hockey in, well, I started ice skating. Uh, I'm born and raised in Nashville, so it was kind of unusual for, um, um, kind of unusual for someone in Nashville to be affiliated with ice hockey because it wasn't a big deal in the 60s, literally, when I started um, uh, for people to uh, to go skating and play ice hockey. But there has been youth hockey in Nashville since the 60s and professional hockey in Nashville since the 60s. And I started uh, when I was about five, because my grandfather and my father both worked for the city of Nashville. And uh, uh, one of the things for the city of Nashville, they owned the auditorium, municipal auditorium, where they played professional ice hockey and where they had public skating. My grandfather ended up running the skate room uh, for public skating sessions. He would show up uh, on every weekend morning and work the, work the rental counter and hand out people skates when they got there. Uh, and, and then he kept all the skates sharpened. So every weekend from the time I was five years old, I was hanging out with granddaddy up at the ice rink. And then I'd go to some of the professional hockey games with, with, with him because they were at the arena. We, we'd get in. 
Uh, and uh, it took me from the time from then till I was about eleven to convince my mom to let me play hockey. But finally, when I was uh, eleven, uh, I, I got her to let me play, and we got together some, some genuine hockey equipment, and uh, and I started playing ice hockey with the the Nashville Youth Hockey League. And uh, I've been playing pretty much ever since. I've skipped a few years here and there, but uh, still at it. That's awesome. I love that. And there's people out there who want to find more information about you. Maybe there's a small business or an entrepreneur who would like to get in touch with you. Um, where can they find you? What's your website? How can they how can they track you down? Um, so if if there were ever any reason that I owed the mafia large amounts of money, it would be <laughs> it would be an unfortunate situation because I uh, I cannot hide from anyone anyone. I'm I'm the most visible person on the planet. If you want to know who I am, where I am, anything, just just Google Terry Lancaster. It's going. My picture is going to show up. My address is going to show up. My phone number is going to show up. It's everything right there. Google Terry Lancaster. Boom. That's awesome. I know you're a super busy guy, and I appreciate your time and your willingness to share your your stories and and your your journey. And it's just been so much fun and such an honor to have this conversation with you today. Well, thank, again, thank you so much for, for having me. I like to run my mouth, so I appreciate you giving me the opportunity. And I hope uh, you and uh, everyone who listens finds it, uh, finds it helpful. Yeah, absolutely. That's it with car sales guru, author, and speaker Terry Lancaster. Next week, we talk with Grayson Toll, a very talented artist. I think a lot of it has to do with, and everyone wants to know if I've taken, not everyone wants to know all these, not all, like a it's big crowd of people are like, can you take classes in color theory? <laughs> never done that but I don't I really don't know but I think a lot of it has to do with I still have a, like a strong imagination and sort of like a childlike mind I feel like or I can easily tap into like eight-year-old Grayson and I've I've always considered that a strength so I feel like a lot of it has to do with just the way that I can look at things certain and I don't know, I still I have such a strong attachment to my eight-year-old self that was truly believed in Terabithia and like still to this day, like I still believe in fairies and all this, and I, or at least I really want to and I don't want it to, that spirit to die away. So I feel like a lot of it has to do with just nostalgia and childhood connection for me. Hey, thanks for listening to Journey to the Rise. Please do follow us on your podcast app so you have the latest episode downloaded. If you want to follow us on Instagram, our account is at Journey to the Rise Podcast. This episode is researched, produced, and edited by Girl Boss Productions. And remember to be kind to yourself. When you are kind to you, it is easier to be kind to others. I'm Lucretia, and you've been listening to Journey to the Rise.